Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. And please, again, don't forget the donate button. But also let me add a thank you for everybody who already didn't forget the donate button. And like we're over a thousand and some odd donors. And uh, it still astounds me that so many people are donating. Uh, but if you are watching or listening and you haven't donated, then you might want to come over and click donate. If you're on YouTube, you can hit the subscribe button and the share and let people know. I'll be back in a minute with a continuation of my series of conversations with Bill Black on financial fraud. Uh, be back in a second. So, as I said, I'm continuing my discussions with Bill Black on the modern history, you could say, of financial fraud in the United States. Bill's an American lawyer, an academic, an author, a former bank regulator. He's the author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, which is the title of this series of these interviews. He's an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Thanks for joining me again, Bill. Thank you. So we left off last segment. And once again, let me say, really go back to part one and watch them all because it's really worth it. Uh, it's been a great education for me and, and I think you'll enjoy them. It's not often you enjoy listening to the history of economics, but Bill makes it so. Uh, at any rate, we left off. Uh, the Obama administration is now in power. Um, and you quote someone from the administration essentially that says, uh, that to go after individual bankers would destabilize the financial system. So it's not just that the banks institutionally are too big to fail, which I think was, a, a if, if that's a true proposition, that's an argu argument for nationalization in some form or another, because you shouldn't allow these financial institutions to be able to blackmail the, the entire society. But that being said, even if that proposition is true, it's not true that individual bankers are too big, big to go to jail, uh, but that's how they were treated. So maybe you pick up the story from there. The person who indicated we uh, had to be really worried about prosecuting uh, senior bankers was Lanny Brewer. Lanny Brewer was head of the criminal division appointed by Obama and Holder. Uh, so he was the most important person in uh, directly making policy. So he ensured that there would be a catastrophic failure. But it's a little weird because when the Obama administration comes in initially, it does one thing right. And this is something that the Bush administration had done as bad as it's possible to do. Uh, and that was at the attorney general level, um, Mukasey. Uh, the FBI, which recall was one of the big warnings, September 2004, says there's an epidemic of mortgage fraud and it's going to cause a financial crisis. And recall that in response, the regulators, not a single regulator calls him or takes any action. The premier law enforcement group in the world. So the FBI comes back and says to McCasey, Attorney General again under Bush, the way you've got this set up is a recipe for failure. Because you, what we know works, the thing we were used in the savings and loan debacle, the thing we used in Enron is task forces. 
and they're essential to dealing with really large amounts of really sophisticated fraud. And you need to have a task force against mortgage fraud. And McCasey refuses, and he refuses on the grounds that, and I quote, it's just the equivalent of white-collar street crime. And of course it was, because he had assigned people not to look in the C-suites, but to look at the little guys, the loan brokers and such, at the absolute bottom of the totem pole. And he said, well, these cases are trivial. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mick. <laughs> you told us to look only at trivial cases and with virtually no people. So there were 120 FBI agents at peak in the savings and loan debacle. And I recall the savings and loan debacle, because we contained it, was a pimple. Whereas we were dealing with, you know, fourth stage cancer uh, in the great financial crisis. To deal with a pimple, we had a thousand FBI white collar specialists. To deal with this unbelievable disaster, they sent 120 folks. So that absolutely guaranteed failure. And then they said, don't look at anybody important, only look at the tiniest people in the food chain. Again, the loan brokers. At this point, the they is the Obama administration or the Bush? The, no, this is the Bush administration, Bush two, President Bush two administration. Well, I, you so know, just, that, to, just to add one little piece to this. In, in 2004, when Bush gets reelected after the complete disaster of the Iraq war, I asked the guy, I can't say his name, but he's, a, he's a, like a billionaire and he knows all the, the elites and all the rest. And I said, how do you guys elect such a complete disaster of a president? How do you reelect him after Iraq, especially? And he says, because he let us rob the piggy bank. We got to do anything we wanted while he was off doing Iraq. Well, again, this is the same president who took the guy that this series has explained was the last survivor of the savings and loan debacle fraud plus predation strategy, right? Who goes to the shadow financial sector, becomes the largest purveyor of fraudulent loans in the world, then over the opposition of the federal regulators, the state attorney generals get together collectively to get a fine against it, right? And at the end of that process, it's the biggest fine for consumer fraud and predation against blacks and Latinos in the history of the United States of America. And as I say, everybody gets this question right. And then we prosecuted him, option A, or B, we made him our ambassador to the Netherlands because he was Bush's leading contributor. So yes, they literally paid him to be able to loot the banks, and then they were rewarded even when they were caught. Okay, so it would have been so simple for the Obama administration to be the heroes. It was set up for them to be the heroes. All they had to do was what they said they were going to do. And as I say, their first act was to unwind this insane decision by 
the attorney general under Bush, Mukasey, that forbade any task force. And they created a task force. So good, right? Now, again, we know exactly how to succeed. You need criminal referrals from the agencies. You need the task force. And you need to prioritize the absolute top people. Whereupon they decided to do none of that, right? So they decided almost immediately that they weren't even going to try to bring criminal cases. They turned it into a civil case. And then they said, and on top of that, we're not going to sue the CEOs and the CFOs and the people in the C-suite that got incredibly rich by blowing up our world economy and predating on Blacks and Latinx folks. We will virtually eliminate such suits. There were only about six against prominent folks. To give you a contrast again, remember the pimple, the savings and loan debacle? We brought hundreds, over 800 individual suits against folks in that case. All our cases were against individuals. Instead, the Obama administration decided we'll just sue the bank and we'll only sue it civilly. Now, let's see. Oh, I used to be a lawyer. I still am, you know, but I'm in recovery. Um, it's a long process when you've been a litigator. Here's the deal. I sue the bank. You're the CEO. None of the money comes from you. All of the money comes from the bank. And then the Justice Department walks away and does nothing to me. What do I care about agreeing to a settlement? Of course I'll agree to a settlement. It ain't my money. It's the shareholder's money. And on top of that, the money was perfect for the Obama administration because it sounded big, but it was unbelievably trivial compared to the size of this organization. This is another more subtle point about too big to fail. It means it's you're too big to deter. And wasn't there, and wasn't there another piece to this fine that while they were paying what sounded to any normal human being like a large fine, they were getting practically free money through quantitative easing from the Fed. So like- Oh, no, they were getting, they were getting so many different things, Paul. But yeah, yeah, yeah. bring me back to that in a moment. All right. Uh, type just of just thing. That, what if the fines were meaningless to them? The, well, here is the proof of it. Remember, these are guys that purport to believe in markets. In virtually every case, when the settlement was announced, the stock price went up. <laughs> So the markets gave their judgment, which was, <laughs> we're dealing with morons, right? Um, and morons who don't want to win. Because after all, remember what these institutions actually did. They didn't cause kind of large losses. They caused literally a trillion dollars in losses. Now, we, as we've explained in the series, banks had virtually no capital. And that which they had was massively overstated. So, could we have really large fines equivalent 
to the damage they caused? Well, no, because they'd all fail, right? And we've already said we can't have you fail. So in addition to what I've described in terms of the negotiation dynamics, I also know as a defense counsel representing the bank that you're never going to ask for anything remotely close to the damages I actually caused because then my bank would fail. Plus, as you say, the federal government is sending shitloads of money (laughs) to all of these major banks. There are no other words to describe it. So I think that's even scientifically put. Go ahead. That is, that is how we say it precisely in economics, right? <laughs> At least if, as informed by criminology. So if the money was going to come, it would have to come for the federal government to pay the own fine to the federal government. Now, on top of this scam, It's in the interest of both parties to make the number sound high, right? So this is a super freebie. All the numbers, settlement numbers you heard were vastly inflated because what they included in them was the frequent thing that you actually do as a lender, as Donald Trump emphasized in the first Republican debate for the nomination. He said all the greats default all the time, meaning real estate developers. He th- That is a virtually direct quotation, right? And so I'm proud that I stiffed my creditors in all of these things, right? And so what you really do, and then there's a whole thing in accounting on this, um, is you do a settlement in which you reduce the lender's payments right? It's called a troubled debt restructuring, a TDR in jargon. And then there are unique accounting things that make this sweet, where you don't have to recognize losses immediately when you do one of these TDRs. But it's a common sense thing, right? You don't want to foreclose when you could just cut a deal because foreclosures are expensive to keep the person in and you reduce the rent, you know, the, the mortgage payment a bit, and you stretch it out from 30 years to 40 years, those types of things. So banks were gonna do literally millions of those deals anyway. They got to count those deals that they were gonna do anyway as part of the settlement. And those numbers represent billions of dollars. So yes, that number that they always sent out with their press release sounded very large, but you had to cut it by 40 to 50% in many cases, even to see what the actual fine was. But again, we knew the fine was going to be trivial and we knew the fine wasn't going to be paid by the people that were enriched by the fraud. (laughs) So it's, there was by design, zero account personal accountability and zero effective deterrence. That's a smart system, right? That's that's how they teach us to do things in the enforcement business. Did, did I mention again, I was an enforcement head of a federal agency. We never did this because it's, it's stupid. Of course, it's not stupid. It's designed to be stupid. Right. It's designed to do two things. It's designed to do nothing to these people that, after all, put you in the White House with their political contributions and to appear that you did something. 
But the market sees right through it. That's why the stock price goes up in virtually every case. And so personal accountability, you know, the Obama administration is where it went to die in terms of Wall Street. They simply eliminated it. So they didn't do anything about institutional or individual accountability in rea- in real terms, certainly institutional effectively and nothing in terms of charging individuals. Did they do anything legislatively or even in terms of regulation that would stop it all happening again? No, uh, is the short answer. But also you raise additional point. There are other ways to hold people personally accountable. You hold a PCORA style hearing, right? PCORA was the person that did the investigation in the Great Depression that blew the lid off of what the banks did, where he would personally bring in the top bankers in America, sit them for hours, not with a stupid questioning you see three minutes at a time by one member and then another party, but a skilled prosecutor asking hours of cross-examination, right? And he decimated these people in front of the people of the United States. That's not obviously as good as prosecuting, but that is an important form of personal accountability. None of that. So we had Dodd-Frank. There was a huge legislative response. The legislation killed enormous amounts of trees. And then the, the regulations that they insisted be developed killed other forests of trees. But all those hearings, all those hearings. Meaning so much yeah. paper. Yeah. All those hearings. Who did they bring in front of them and hold personally accountable for their frauds? It's easy to remember because the answer is zero, of course. Right. So they had an opportunity with all of those congressional hearings. And, you know, they simply refused to even try to do it. The regulators could have brought enforcement actions personally against the individuals. They could have removed and prohibited them from the industry. They could have brought cease and desist orders that in essence fine the CEO and the other C-suite officers directly. We did thousands of those actions, individual actions, thousands of those. They did virtually none in response to the great financial crisis against individuals. I mean, I remember there were hearings where they dragged the CEOs of the big financial institutions in front of them. Uh, Were there some individuals like like Elizabeth Warren or a few others that actually asked some real questions? Yes, but that's a later problem, right? So uh, uh, Carl Levin um, did hold some real hearings. They're still way unduly polite. They never use the F word. The F word here is the five letter F word. You should be able to use fraud, (laughs) right? They, They never do that. Uh, type of thing. But he did have some good questioning of the Goldman Sachs person. He, uh, the Goldman Sachs had came across as a complete liar, uh, in that. Um, and you don't always have to say, Hey, he's a liar. You can just 
hold up a painting sometimes, you know, a, a moving picture uh, that shows that there's a liar. So you're right. There was a little bit of this. Um, there were, there was a congressional oversight bureau and there were three, pres uh, three appointees. Elizabeth Warren was one of them. And you can see that there was some questioning there, but none of the people understood, um, you know, uh, control fraud or predation uh, and such. And again, they're more polite uh, affairs uh, than there. And none of them got any major publicity. So no, there are different ways of holding people personally accountable if you're not going to prosecute them, as I said. And they, the federal agencies religiously didn't hold them accountable. There are, I think, three exceptions to that. There's a Securities and Exchange Commission action against Mozilla, the head of Countrywide, but they settled that for virtually nothing. And all the, virtually all the money came from the bank, not from, and actually from the bank's insurers. There's a thing called director and officer liability insurance. So, and there was one on uh, WAMU, um, Washington Mutual, uh, which again, they settled for virtually no money coming from the individual. So yes, they tried it a couple of times, um, but their heart wasn't in it. And they, you know, they were exercises in futility and nobody even remembers unless you're a weird, really weird wonk uh, that these things occurred. You could uh, interview 5,000 people and you wouldn't get a single one that knew that there was an SEC action against Mozilla or against, uh, or a FDIC action against uh, WAMU. Okay, so Dodd-Frank was supposed to be the big piece of legislation that was going to create the kind of regulatory framework so all of this too big to fail and all this doesn't happen again. So one, did it, and then two, I know I'm jumping ahead a bit, but under Trump, what there was of it, I, th I thought they kind of took apart anyway. But let's start with, did Dodd-Frank actually have the teeth to stop it from happening again? No. Um, so you talked earlier about too big to fail. They have a different jargon. They call these things systemically important institutions. Right. Of course, the opposite is true. Their analytics really say it's a systemically dangerous institution that as soon as the next one blows up, it will blow up the world economy. And there are roughly, uh, globally, roughly 30 of these institutions. Hmm. So we're rolling the dice every day and they will periodically blow up. So that's insane, right, as a policy. And it's more insane than you've even let on in your statements because Forget nationalization for the moment. Why the hell do you allow something to be systemically dangerous? There's no reason to allow it to be that large. There are most economists think there are no economies of scale that you gain by letting it get really large. So what the hell are you doing? Letting them get so large. Just say 
you can't exceed 50 billion in assets or 100 billion, right? That would be good for the world and it would be dramatically reduce the, this kind of thing that's called systemic risk. They were absolutely refused to do that. Instead, we have this hilarious thing that says, basically, you're supposed to have, and I quote, a, a, like a living will that says, hey, if I'm about to blow up, here's what you ought to do. But none of us can foresee the circumstances in which you'd be about to blow up. This is right? part of Dodd. This is part of Dodd Frank. It's right? part of Dodd Frank. These living yeah. wills, right? So, the, but there could be literally millions of circumstances. So, what the hell is my living will supposed to say? You know, sell this asset, buy that. You know, I mean, it's it's all insane. Also, there's they created a new body that was supposed to look at risk. This new body is filled entirely with economists and statisticians. The people who get it absolutely wrong and absolutely incredibly late. The thing that is the early warning system always is loan underwriting. And they did nothing to aid loan underwriting virtually. And the bankers, the, you know, that run the federal agencies are hostile to unwriting, and they love listening to these economists prayed on about risk models. So our big thing is stress tests, right? And, and uh, Geit, this is Geithner's baby, and that's his book, Stress Tests. So what he doesn't tell you is, what do all of these institutions have in common? The three Icelandic giant banks, Fannie, Freddie, AIG, and a host of others. Well, they all had stress tests just before they failed, and they all passed them glowingly. Fannie and Freddie pitched this, and I'm not making this up, as a nuclear winter scenario. That even in the equivalent, the financial equivalent of a nuclear winter, they'd come out smelling like roses. Obviously, they were insolvent immediately and such. So these stress tests were a pure PR device. And the, the Obama administration people to this day are incredibly proud of themselves that they conned the American people by having a quote unquote stress test that they were smart. The first one, a couple of folks slightly failed them. That's good, right? Credibility. And the second iteration, virtually everybody passes. So whew, we don't have to worry. You know, you just got this equivalent of the cardiogram. You can go out and pump iron and run and all those good types of things. Have sex. It'll all be good. <laughs> but these stress tests are jokes. Everybody knows they're jokes. They have always been jokes. They failed completely in the great financial crisis. They will fail in the future. That was the bright idea that they had behind these things. And then they had a thousand ideas, like, you know, China let a, a thousand flowers bloom type thing. And some of them are good ideas, but there are freaking thousand of them. And they, and they created a bill that was this fungus. 
and it does have some good ideas, but no, it's insane, right? Why would you dump all of this stuff? Like you don't want a system that is immensely complex because who's going to win? The biggest banks, always. Yeah, isn't that the point? They're so complex, no one can understand it but the biggest banks. So you need the, those people expertise to deal with this crazy complexity you help create. And then, and, and, and number two, if you don't have a ca individual accountability, then what's the point of it all anyway? Right. So tr to translate viewers, when I say insane, I don't mean mentally deranged. I mean, it's designed to be insane right. <laughs> in these contexts. Right. So yes. And what was the thing just before that the great financial crisis. So Europeans, anybody, Europeans, non-Americans watching this, how come the great financial crisis was so incredibly severe in Europe? Overwhelmingly, the crappy loans, not entirely, Ireland, Spain, you know, and other, other places used the same fraud schemes that American banks used. But the crisis in Europe was even worse than the crisis in the United States. How the hell did that happen when most of the losses were in the United States? Well, it comes from exactly what you said, Paul. They had this super bright idea. Guess what? The big banks suggested it. And they said, they being the international financial regulators, the Basel process, as it's called, said, what a great idea. They said, we'll invite you guys, the big banks, quant guys, inside the tent to make the capital rules. And only you guys. And I know it will shock you, Paul, but they came up with a new risk-based system unique to the systemically dangerous banks. Only about 30 in the world. They had a special standard, and again, heavily in Europe. And this special standard was the bank will create the model that decides how much capital the bank needs. Again, the giant banks only get to create their own models. And I know it will shock you, but in every case, these models said, we don't need no stinking capital. They literally produce capital requirements in the range of about one and a half percent. What should it have been? Well, no capital ratio would have worked for frauds, but it should have been 20 to give you an idea of magnitude, right? And precisely because, again, these are the roughly 30 institutions that pose a systemic risk to the global economy. So they should have much higher capital requirements than other folks. And instead, they virtually eliminated them. Now, here's a good news story. There haven't been many of them in this series. The FDIC fought a ferocious rearguard action in which the head of the FDIC... This is Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And I know it will shock you, a woman did the right thing and said, no, hell no. 
This is insane. And she was called a Luddite in press. Again, a wrecker. What um, was her name? And of course, I'm blanking on it. I will get it for you. Um, um, but she said, no, hell no. And the FDIC fought and they fought and they fought. And the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, was their economists were the leaders of saying, yes, great, this is what we need to do. And the Fed is much more powerful than the FDIC normally. But the FDIC did studies and said, this is going to virtually eliminate their capital requirement. This is insane. And so it was never imposed in the United States, but Europe did begin to adopt it. And so as terrible as leverage, again, leverage is debt to equity. So as terrible as the leverage was of U.S. banks, European banks on average were twice as debt burdened as U.S. banks. And so when the great financial crisis hit, they had nothing to stand. And, you know, huge numbers of them were swept away. Okay, so I, I we're going to kind of move ahead because I want to make sure we get to in the next segment, all focus on today. So, so the Obama administration, you've explained. Uh, so I, I'm assuming that Trump, who we know is the friend of the working family and working man, came in and cleaned the swamp. He, he cleaned all this up on behalf of working people. Am I right? Yeah, he ran against uh, the terrible fact of having Goldman Sachs people, and then he put three of them in his senior leadership on day one. Uh, so, of, of course, uh, Trump uh, is the swampiest of the swamp uh, creatures, uh, and he uh, sought to gut any rules that did make any sense uh, that he inherited from the Obama administration. But mostly the place had, you know, he, again, the, the legislation was so bad, so enormous um, that it never could do anything. So he didn't even, finance is actually not his biggest area of, of swampy uh, behavior. He just put in people that didn't care to enforce anything. What they really did worst was something we haven't been emphasizing. Um, but one of the most important forms of deregulation ever was deregulating interest rates. Right. And this was again done actually begins under Carter and culminates under Reagan. We've already explained that that was the key to the massive growth that any little Berg bank that has federal deposit insurance can grow by a hundred percent tomorrow by just offering a slightly higher interest rate. But it also allowed predation because now you could charge 500% interest rates. Literally, payday lenders charge over 500% interest rates uh, in the United States. And by the way, I was just looking at the UK yet uh, last night, actually this morning, about 4 a.m., and they are very proud of the legislation that they uh, adopted on payday lenders because they discovered payday lenders were charging over 3,000, in some cases, 5,000% annual 
percentage rate of interest. And they adopted a reform that caps it at 1300% annual percentage rate of interest. Right? So what happened what happened to laws against loan sharking? Oh, th- those people aren't allowed to compete. <laughs> those those laws remained. <laughs> Um, but your friendly bank um, is the the loan shark, and and the payday lenders, of course, were the huge ones. Anyway, that was, in fairness, and, and it's good that you brought this up. In fairness, the best thing about Dodd Frank was the creation of the, the C- Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and that was Senator Warren's uh, a baby, and Geithner tried very hard to kill it. Um, but uh, Obama actually stayed with Senator Warren on uh, that one. And Paul Volcker was uh, very important, apparently, as part of this uh, process as well. And so for the first time, we had a consumer uh, agency that its mission was to protect the consumer. The, if you're the FDIC, the Office of Control of the Currency, the Federal Reserve, um, that kind of got added a little bit on, but they don't even, they don't even bother as a leadership to, you, you never have, have them say, our mission is to protect consumers. So this agency was set up that way and it was set up with funding protected because the Fed is a moneymaker and each year it returns hundreds, not hundreds, tens of billions of dollars to the treasury. And so they siphoned off a little of that. And that was smart because Congress, and this is partisan, Republicans, for over 20 years have waged a war to eviscerate the Securities and Exchange Commission and um, the Consumer Finance uh, Trading Commission. Um I'm sorry, Commodity Future Trading Commission, the CFTC, which is supposed to regulate financial derivatives. And my mentor, Henry Pontel, actually developed this theory in criminology decades ago. It's called systems capacity or incapacity, where they deliberately create a system in which there is no capacity for the regulators or prosecutors to succeed. And so... They just gut the budget. For example, you know, now uh, hyperfrequency trading, trading in nano, literally in nanoseconds is the vast bulk of all trades. And it's really dangerous and stupid to the system. And it doesn't have any benefits to society, just individual sleaze. So we clearly ought to be regulating it. And it's helped produce flash crash. Um, you know, that uh, almost, that did bring down the system for at least a day. So we obviously should be dealing with this. The Republicans have ensured that the SEC and the CFTC do not have sufficient resources to buy the computer capacity to even analyze after the fact the crises. 
just to put this in concrete terms, this is people speculating not just on things like silver and you name it, but wheat, I mean, food and artificially driving up the prices of food often. And, and not speculating necessarily, but uh, what we call front running, which is, oh, we know that somebody else, one of our clients is going to make an order. We'll get in front of them because we know that order will move price up or down and we'll capture the profit instead of our uh, them. And we know that there's all kinds of very sleazy stuff we should be studying because the vast number of uh, hyperfrequency trading are what we call way out of the money, right? They're not anywhere near market prices. And at best, that's a search feature where they're trying to find something out about other people but almost certainly it's a manipulative device and a deceptive device to send false signals. And we don't want to send false price signals. The whole idea of a market is to send honest price signals and make it function better. So again, Congress is not, again, Republicans in Congress are deliberately making it so that we cannot effectively even understand what these people are doing, much less counter it. And there was, I remember, a big fight at the Commodities Future Trading Commission uh, to try to establish position limits so nobody could control. I, th- I think it had been previously 25% of any particular commodity. And commodity means stuff we really use. That's not an abstraction. Uh, and 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 on, I, I think they finally passed a position limit that was within somewhat more reasonable, and then it got overturned in federal court, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but but also again, these bids are so massively greater than position limits because they're not going to end up in an actual position, um, and they're designed to deceive. We think now, if it isn't. Why not give us the money to be able to study the damn things and say, oh, you know, they do have some benefit. They don't want it studied. So pretty much, I don't think that's true. So under Trump, did it get worse or it just continued to sort of deteriorate? It just uh, continued to spiral in the drain <laughs> type of thing. The The big guys are typically getting much, much, much bigger. Right. So these crises aren't something that happen every day. And they tend to be ones in which not one of the big guys, but a half dozen of the big guys or more all get in trouble at the same time. And the fact that one hasn't occurred in the last 10 years, well, of course, we wouldn't expect it to do so, but it's also can be bad news. In other words, when you go a full 14 years between crises, again, it's the magic of exponential growth. If you're growing 50% a year, it looks like a hockey stick. Okay, so this is the reason we're doing this series of interviews, because it's not just a nice history lesson. The point is, is that the systemic danger Maybe not only exists; it may even be more dangerous. No, no, no. It is is greatly amplified. Okay, that is greatly amplified since the great financial crisis. Okay, so in the next segment, we're gonna we're up to the Biden administration. 
uh, they're, you know, they're talking about reform. Uh, are they actually taking steps? Are they making appointments? And I'm posing this not as, this is what the next segment's going to be. I'm going to ask Bill, is there anything encouraging all this? Uh, and, and so far, everyone points to the appointment of Gary Gensler, who was at the Future Trading Commission. Uh, but I'm not sure how much power he's going to wind up having. Anyway, next segment is more or less the final segment, because the segment's going to be, what's the Biden administration doing and what should they be doing? And, and what, you know, in Bill's view, uh, you know, what kind of regulation might actually uh, prevent another massive crisis coming? So thank you, Bill. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And don't forget the donate button and all of that. Bye-bye. The thing that bothers me most about all of this is no one went to jail. So I put together a special financial crimes unit to say, go figure out how this happened, who did what, and those that are guilty of criminal behavior need to go to jail. How else do you explain to the American people there's cause-effect relationships here in which you're going to hold people accountable? One of the big pieces of evidence we found was we found documents that showed that banks knew that a lot of the loans that they were putting in the mortgage securities they were selling to investors throughout the world, that they were defective. And even though they knew that, they told investors they weren't. They affirmatively represented that they were good loans while they had information that they were quite something else. And even though the banks have admitted wrongdoing and have now paid $40 billion in fines, the Department of Justice has yet to hold one single individual accountable for that wrongdoing, civilly or criminally. I think the Department of Justice um, uh, is scared and still is scared today to prosecute large companies. They don't want to do it. And so what replaced prosecuting companies criminally and what replaced going after individuals at the highest levels were settlements for money. Corporations wrote checks and settled with the government um, and then promised not to do it again. And there are big problems with this regime. The main problem is that corporations keep doing wrong things. They are recidivists. And you've seen this with Wells Fargo and you've seen it with JP Morgan you've seen it with BP and Goldman and Pfizer, and the list goes on and on. This is a regime that's broken. I mean, it's gotten to the point where we're almost desensitized to fraud uh, at the big banks in Wall Street. We've come to expect it. Of course it happened again. Of course it happened again. So just a quick litany. As we sit here today, the fraud at Wells Fargo is unwinding itself, but we know they opened millions of accounts fraudulently. We know for sure that the big banks around the world rigged the global currency markets to some extent, and they rigged the LIBOR market to some extent. And we've got emails where they talk about how they rigged it. And we know also that shareholders at JP Morgan Chase were misled about the degree of risks that JP Morgan Chase was taking onto its balance sheet pursuant to the London whale trades in their London office. So those are just, that, that's just like the last few years, right? Then you put on top of that all the settlements that have come out from the financial crisis. And what you hear is just a steady drumbeat 
of fraud after fraud after fraud at these mega banks. And I think that they're too big to manage. They are too big to fail. That clearly is continuing. And in the end, it seems that they have become too big to comply with law. And that's unacceptable in a society where, as you previously stated, everything is built upon the rule of law.